0: So now we are going to conclude chapter four because we ended off at verse 43. Verse 43 in chapter four, and we'll try to get through chapter five in its entirety. Let's begin. Verse 43, after two days, Jesus departed to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast." When Jesus says he's not honored in his own country, he's just come from the south, from Jerusalem. And this statement really, I think, summarizes in chapter 2, verse 20. This is John, the author of the Gospel. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what man was. There's a sense in which Jesus acknowledges that yes, people see the signs and they believe, but that's not the faith he's really wanting Trying to bring them to a certain faith. But a faith in Christ by virtue of who he is. And not the miracles. Because if they just trust in the miracles. That's what they're looking for. That's a shallow faith. That's probably what he's referring to here. In the verses that I've just read. In John chapter 4 verse 43 and 44. Scholars are a bit confused about it. But that's the best they can come up with. Verse 45 we hear, "When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast." Again, a sense that they welcome him because they have seen what he had done. They had seen the signs. Verse 46, we so came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. Now this official was probably in the court of Herod Antipas who had killed John the Baptist which means he was likely a Gentile and therefore further away from God than the Samaritan woman in the sense that at least the Samaritans were half Jews and they had the Torah at least they believed in the first five books even though their faith was skewed with pagan worship as well but Gentiles were much further away yet here's Jesus and he's going to work a miracle at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee he went and begged him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death now again the fact that this official wants Jesus to come down and actually be present at the healing is another aspect of having to see the sign. Jesus is going to take him on a journey because he rebuffs him. Jesus therefore, verse 38, said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's the initial rejection. Similar to what Jesus will say to the Canaanite woman, remember that incident, where she comes to Jesus and first the disciples try to shoo her away. And then she comes to Jesus. She's not in any way rebuffed and Jesus rejects her as well. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Yet she perseveres. She doesn't go away. And he says again, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now that's, a, that's an insult. But she does not care because her daughter is, well, she's demon possessed. So as a good mother, she perseveres and will not take no for an answer. And she replies, yes, but isn't it okay for the dogs to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table? And that's when Jesus says, your daughter is healed. And the disciples are present when he does this. This is a learning experience for them is they are being taught by this woman perseverance and great faith and and humility. And it's gonna take them a long time to learn that. But the same thing is happening here because in John chapter four, verse 38, when Jesus therefore said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you is in the plural, which means it's not just being addressed to this one man but to all people, including us. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So now he's persevering in faith. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. There's the challenge. Will he go and trust Jesus' word from a distance? The man believed, verse 50, the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. So there's a yielding in faith. He trusts the word of Jesus. He doesn't have to have Jesus come all the way down to heal, but he believes. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The men believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was living. So he asked them the hour when he began to mend. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. So again, he's trying to get a sign here. The fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and his, all his household. Now he becomes an evangelist. He's testifying to his whole family of this miracle. And they all believe. Similar to the woman at the well who... Testify to the whole community. Testimony is a major theme in this gospel of John. So the comment is, for us today, it's difficult to trust simply in the word that we hear, let's say at mass or when we read the scriptures, when we are enmeshed in a materialistic world that really has to see signs to be satisfied. So yes, it's very difficult, but that's where faith comes in And the sacraments help us in that regard, to trust Jesus when we pray to him and we trust in Jesus, that he will answer in the way that is best for us in that particular situation. Verse 34 ends the chapter. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So the second sign, the first was the changing water into wine. Okay, now we begin chapter 5, and this begins a whole new section in John's Gospel, in the sense that from chapters 5 to 10, we're going to hear about a number of Jewish feasts in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to basically say, in so many words, that he is the fulfillment of each one of those feasts in himself. The whole liturgical aspect of the Old Testament Jewish feasts are now fulfilled in Christ. Now we're not told in chapter 5 what the feast was in that particular sense, but scholars think it's probably Pentecost. But in chapter 6, it's the Passover, and then chapters 7 to 10 is all about the tabernacles. At the end of chapter 10, we have the, the feast of the dedication of the temple. So all of these feasts Jesus is basically going to stand up in the midst of the celebration by the Jews, right at the temple and say, what you're celebrating is fulfilled in me. What is the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the journey of Israel through the desert after being released from Egypt. So that's the one context of chapter 5, is this fulfillment of all the Jewish feasts. The other context, though, is Jesus is going to unlock his own heart and his relationship with the Father. And in a sense, give us an introduction into the Trinity in this chapter. It's just a beginning of an understanding of how Jesus relates to the Father. That's going to cause the Jews to want to put him to death. Because they're going to think Jesus is claiming to be God, which he is, but for them there's only one God. And the fact that Jesus says he is God means polytheism. They think Jesus is in competition with God, two gods. Jesus will be at pains to begin to explain, yes he is co-equal, co-substantial with the Father, in one nature, but he's also in a position of subordination. Pardon? Did
1: he say he
0: was God? Oh, he definitely says he's God in this chapter. This is one of the major themes of divinity in the whole New Testament. It's right here in chapter 5. Mm-hmm. He's going to make the claim that he is equal to the Father. Equal to the Father. Equal to the Father.
1: You can understand how it would be difficult for them to understand that.
0: Especially the Jews will have great difficulty in understanding this. Exactly. And that's the
1: reason they crucified them. Yes, that's why they crucified them. was also a threat to the Pharisees that came into being part of their...
0: Yes, so it's not just theological, but it's also political, because the Pharisees are in charge, they wanna remain in charge, they don't want this upstart, know-nothing carpenter to say that they don't have the truth or at least they need to learn more about who God is. So it's a matter of jealousy. And only one who lives,
1: therefore, is Nicodemus.
0: Well, Nicodemus at least is open (laughs) to questioning Jesus, and he will, as I mentioned earlier, gradually come from that dark place into the light, because he ends up defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and then brings all the spices at the burial Mm -hmm. to honor Now, we're not told anything more than that but that's a good start. Okay, so that's a brief introduction into the context of the chapter. Let's go into the verses, verse 1. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Hebrew called Bethsaida which has five porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Bethsaida really means house of mercy. Beth means house. Seda comes from the word hesed, which is that famous Old Testament word which means mercy. So it's house of mercy. Scholars think that Bethsaida probably was a pagan healing shrine prior to when the Israelites came in and conquered Jerusalem. There was this healing aspect that was known about this particular pool. In fact, this pool, for many, many centuries, and especially when the scholars got into the act, they they thought this was non-existent. The pool was just an invention of John. But in 1888, they actually discovered it. They dug it up. And as you can see, it's a a site that you can visit now. It's right near the church of St. Anne's. It's right near the temple. But because the waters were stirred up occasionally, there was this thinking that an angel came down from heaven and stirred up the waters, and the first person in the pool, as the waters were being stirred up, would be healed. (laughs) And that's why you have, if you're carefully reading chapter 5, verse 4 is missing. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Hebrew called Bethsaida, which has five porticos. And then verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Then it jumps to verse 5. Verse 4 is missing. That's because scholars believe that verse 4 was actually added later on. It's not present in the most ancient Greek manuscripts. But they do give verse 4 in the footnote. So if you go to the bottom of the page, they quote the verse. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever stepped in first after the troubling of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's not in the best manuscripts because it's it's too recent. So they think it was a later addition, some interpretation. What troubled the waters was an underground spring that occasionally bubbled up, and they thought, this this could be an angel coming down, troubling the waters. But it was recognized as a healing pool, and there were five porticos, which means like patios, where invalids gathered. Now, it was a rectangular pool, but right down the middle of the pool is a wall which separates it, and that's where the fifth portico is. So the four are on the four corners, and then the fifth is right down the middle, that separates it this pagan longing for healing continued and obviously that's what Jesus has come to address he's going to be the the spring as he told the woman at the well that whoever drinks of his nourishment will be a spring welling up to eternal life. Verse 5 it says one man was there who had been ill for 38 years the 38 years may have a reference to the 38 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert after being released from captivity in Egypt if you remember the story they had a good start they got through the Red Sea Moses parted the waters they camped at Mount Sinai they got the law and this great Theophany and then they got to the edge of the promised land within two years God told Moses to go in and enter the promised land I will give you the promised land I will be with you Don't fear the inhabitants. But they doubt, so they send 12 spies into the promised land to spy it out, to see, well, how's the best way we can conquer it? What's the best methods? Who are these people? And they come back, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, give a good report. They say, this land is flowing with milk and honey. God's going to be with us. Let's go in and take it. The other 10 say, no, no, there's giants in the land. This is a fierce people. They have fortifications in their cities. It cannot be conquered. And they convinced the rest of the Israelites not to enter the Promised Land. So much so that the rest of the Israelites bickered and complained against God. You led us all the way out here through the desert. We can't take the Promised Land and we're going to die. We're going to die. So they didn't trust trust the Word of God and God said basically, okay, you don't want to enter the promised land, don't enter it. For the next 38 years, they wandered around in the desert, and God said, this entire generation must first die, because of their lack of faith, the next generation, your children, will be given a chance to enter, it, and Joshua and Caleb will lead them. 38 years, he's sitting there, not healed. But when Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now that's an important question. Because the man was there 38 years. It shows really lack of initiative or at least maybe despondency. He's given up hope. No one was available to help him into the pool when the water was stirred. Again, scholars believe this is an image of Israel at the time. Israel was lame, no initiative, and they had been conquered by the Romans. Because of their lack of faith, they breached the covenant throughout the Old Testament, and here they are, kind of like this man. They're not understanding who God is, they're trusting in themselves, and they're in captivity. And so Jesus is saying to this man, and to the Jews entirely, and the Jewish system of Sacraments or feasts, do you want to be healed? It's a question perennial question for each generation Do you want to be healed? Yeah, yeah, it's true that this fourth gospel is much different from the synoptics John is trying to bring a higher Spiritual understanding to the deeds of Jesus Uh, the three synoptic Gospels are basically setting out the deeds of Jesus Which are obviously important But John is trying to give an interpretation of them. He's saying, he's
1: proving that uh, Jesus is God all the way through
0: it. Yes. That's the main theme of John's Gospel. Jesus is God divine. And we'll see it here in spades in this chapter. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is troubled. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Okay, so in that lack of initiative, Jesus says, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. That's a prefiguring of the power of Jesus' resurrection. Rise, be resurrected. Notice it's a performative statement. You can distinguish between words that are merely descriptive, they describe events that are existing and then there's action words, performative words, that when they're said, things happen. Such as in the opening chapters of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there is light. It's the same thing here. Rise, and you will be healed. And exactly what is happening. That performative word is important for us as Catholics, because the same performative words are said at Mass. When the priest in Persona Christi says over the bread and the wine the very words that Jesus said at the Last Supper and that changes the bread and wine into the body, blood, soul and divinity of Christ. It's performative. It's a miracle. Same with the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Your sins are forgiven, the priest says, it's Christ speaking through the priest, and your sins are forgiven. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. So far, so good. But there's a problem. But there's a problem. For that day was the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, throughout the synoptics and here, deliberately heals on the Sabbath. When he initiates a healing, it's on the Sabbath, because he wants to pick a fight with the leaders. He wants to engage them in this conversation so that they can understand who he is. He's challenging their understanding of the Sabbath, their understanding of God by this miracle. He does it deliberately on the Sabbath to engage mercifully with these Jewish leaders. He wants them to
1: understand he's Lord of
0: the Sabbath. Exactly. He wants them to understand that he is Lord of the Sabbath, which is how the Synoptic Gospels conclude this. Now, it's not said that way in John's Gospel, but in Luke chapter 6, that's the conclusion of that whole incident where, remember, Jesus is walking through the grain fields with his disciples. It's a Sabbath. They're hungry. They pick some corn. They rub it on their hands to get the kernels off the cob, and the, the leaders see that and say, ah, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, which is a claim to divinity. Verse 10, the Jews said to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your pallet.
1: Seriously.
0: Yeah, seriously.
1: (laughs) Now, this was not
0: part of the original Mosaic law, but was added as part of the hundreds of regulations that Jewish leaders Pharisees in particular added so that the entire law could pervade every aspect, every minutiae of life. Now in their defense the Pharisees are trying to establish this culture because once the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians there was no more sacrifice and that was what defined Israel was their ability to sacrifice in the temple. Once that was destroyed the Pharisees thought well let's Emphasize the mosaic law and make it so pervasive that every aspect of life is centered on that, which would then distinguish us from these pagans.
1: The laws became a burden.
0: And it became a burden, a huge burden. Well, There were 39 specific regulations on what constituted work on the Sabbath. One of them was: you cannot carry a burden, like a heavy object like your bed. So, the Jewish leaders are quick to point this out. In verse 10, when it says, so the Jews said to the man, John's referring to the Jewish leaders. This is not the Jewish people in general, it's the leaders. When the Jews said to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. He answered them, the man who healed me said to me, take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? Now here is a major theme throughout the gospel of John and the synoptics, who is Jesus? And it's a question in every generation has to answer, who is Jesus? Is he just a good teacher, human only? Or is he God who brought the entire universe into being and will judge it at the end of time? And that was what Jesus asked his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Some said, well, John the Baptist and Elijah and the prophets. And then Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ. And that's when Jesus built his church on Peter and his confession of faith. Yes.
1: Uh, an outstanding miracle has been performed in front of all sorts of witnesses. And you don't
0: think the Pharisees are interested in yes, that's how incapacitated they were at the time, which is why this man is lying invalid 38 years. He's an emblem of the Israelites at the time. They're totally anemic. All they can think about is the law and their particular interpretation of it, nitpicking, rather than see this great miracle and say, Oh, who is this? can heal a man lame 38 years. Yes, this is the beginning of the controversy right here. The question was, is this the beginning of the controversy? And it it is. Jesus and the scholars will all say this. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus because to claim to be God, to claim to have authority on the Sabbath, to have the very prerogatives God has, because only God can work on the Sabbath, even the Jews would acknowledge that, and only God can really heal But here's Jesus doing both, and they they can't tolerate that. Take up your pallet and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. Though there's an important point. Yes, Jesus heals him physically, But the real question is, has he been healed spiritually? Because the worst thing that can happen to a person is they die in their sins and then they're eternally lost. So sin no more. And this will be right through the entire New Testament. When someone is paralyzed, yes, it's a physical ailment, but it's an image or a symbol of spiritual paralysis, which is caused by sin. Not that the person himself, his sin caused the paralysis, but Jesus is going to use throughout the Synoptics, all four Gospels, he's going to use paralysis and and other infirmities as a bridge to the higher realm of spiritual health. Something worse will happen, that's right. We'll see one example of this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. That's why Jesus here is saying to this man who has been physically healed, sin no more. You've met me. and I've healed you physically, but something worse can happen to you. So sin no more. That's basically the advice we get when we come to the Sacrament of Confession. Your sins are forgiven, sin no more. Let nothing worse befall you, the text says. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Again, testimony, the theme of testimony. The man can't help but share the good news Yes. Just like the woman at the well, this man can't keep it to himself. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus, because he did this on the Sabbath. Violating the Sabbath and healing, that's divine prerogatives. Here's Jesus, not divine, according to these Jewish leaders. But Jesus answered them, my father is working still and I am working. That's a claim to divinity. It's my father, personal, my father. I am the father's son. Since he is working on the Sabbath, I can work because we're equal. That's implied in his statement. And the Jews, they would have held that God still works even on the Sabbath, because he holds the universe in existence. If he were to stop working, the universe would basically not exist. And there's people being born every day, and there's people dying every day, so God is active in that capacity, so God is certainly active on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, my father is active, I can act. Well, he's, he's doing them deliberately to instigate the leaders so that they can come to faith. And notice he's not just claiming to be equal to God, he's performing a miracle at the same time. This is an act of mercy for these Jewish leaders. Just as he did with the woman at the well, he told her everything she ever did. A miracle. As he's inviting her to drink of the water that he's willing to give. He's basically doing the same here to the Jewish leaders, but they're not as open as the woman.
1: And Father, I think it's a lesson here for us because Jesus never took the easy way. He challenged people. And so I think it's up to us to challenge our faith very often when we're confronted with uh, people who don't believe.
0: Yes. And to do it in love. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Continuing verse eighteen, this was why the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke mm-hmm. the Sabbath, but also called God his Father, making himself equal to God, which for Jews was polytheism. Two gods cannot happen. They have no idea about the Trinity and the one nature in the three persons.
1: Did they say that was blasphemy?
0: Too. Yeah, it's, it's definitely blasphemy. So let's see how Jesus responds, and these next verses are really probably the strongest statements of Jesus' claim to divinity there are. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, so amen, amen, pay attention. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus is now introducing a relationship with the Father in um, some kind of subordination or obedience or dependency.
1: That when he says, like, the Father's in me and in the father, like, He'll say
0: that later on. Yeah, he'll say that later on. But here he's just introducing, yes, he's claiming divinity, but he's also saying, not the way you understand. There's not two gods. But let me open your hearts mm-hmm. to a much deeper truth and reality. The Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever he does... That's the Father. The Son does likewise. There's a claim again to divinity. Whatever the Father does, just a blanket statement, the Son does likewise. And then he will enumerate what that is. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him that you may marvel. Now here love is introduced, which is the foundation of the Trinitarian life. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their relationship is grounded in love. And we are invited to share in that exchange of love, right in the inner life of God, in the Trinitarian relationship. And greater works than these, he will show him that you may marvel. Now, the greater work will be the resurrection, but all of the miracles climaxing in the resurrection where death itself is defeated once and for all. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Again, a flat claim to divinity. Jesus will say that in his response to Thomas in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus has life itself in him, as the Father does. He can bring from nothing, things that did not exist into existence. The people who have died back to life. That's a divine prerogative, and I can do it on the Sabbath. Verse 22 The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Two claims of divinity right there. Judgment. Only God can judge one's final destiny. Jesus is saying, the Father has given that to me. I will judge at the end of time. And the honor that the Father has is the honor that I have. Two separate claims to divinity. Equality in judgment and equality in honor with God the Father. And then he says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So unless the Jews the leaders honor Jesus as God as the Father is honored they have no life you can't get any more clear than that as to divinity verse 24 truly truly I say to you he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life that's another claim to divinity whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So the word of Jesus is a divine word. It has passed from death to life, and that's a reference to now. Passing from the old dispensation, the old covenant that did not have the power to save into the new life of grace. And that's what Jesus is going to unfold, and Paul as well, that this Ability to come to life is present when we believe It's not we don't have to wait until the end of our life to get eternal life It starts now our whole interior life is regenerated The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us sanctifying grace the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we have passed from the old law written on stone Which is dead in, insofar as being able to do the things that Jesus is referring to now Into life and that's what he's telling the Jewish leaders you can come to this new life it's an invitation it's an act of mercy he knows their heart so he's basically knowing he's going to be crucified but he's going to give them an opportunity and we're not told really in the Gospels how many of these Jews actually converted We know a lot of them did because Paul had to deal with one of the big problems in the New Testament church, which was many Jews did convert to Christianity, but then when the pagans were invited in, these Jewish Christians said, well, yes, that's fine, but you have to obey the prescriptions of us, the Jews. You have to be circumcised, you have to obey the purity laws and so forth in order to actually become a Christian. And Paul had to fight tooth and nail, and it actually was only really resolved in Acts chapter 15 when you had that first council of the church, Council of Jerusalem. That was the real controversy that prompted that first council. Can a Gentile come into this new life, become a Christian, without also having to obey the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law? circumcision, purity codes, and so forth. These Jewish leaders who did convert, many of them said, yes, they have to do that. And that, Paul knew, would be a roadblock. Yes, that's right. So even though Peter believed that, he had trouble actually living it out. It would take time. It's a big jump to actually, because this was so ingrained in the Jews throughout the Old Testament, these um, ceremonial aspects, because it's what codified them as a people and separated them from the pagans. And so they wouldn't eat with pagans. They wouldn't really converse or do business unless they really had to. The separation is what the Pharisees really wanted. Jesus exactly wanted the opposite. He wanted to take down that wall of separation and bring in not just Samaritans, but Jews into this relationship with his father. And that's why he's taking the pains that he does in this chapter to invite these leaders to see the miracle. Jesus' word has power. Performative words like the Father. and Will they open their heart and acknowledge, yes, we need to be changed? Yes, you have a question? I have a question It
1: has to do with the words, uh, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Does that eternal life for us uh, begin when we accept Jesus as our savior?
0: It begins in baptism, but also with faith. So the two have to go hand in hand. Baptism without faith won't do much and to
1: get you in the door. both are necessary. Yes. <laughs>
0: A couple of things I wanted to mention in this chapter 5, this healing begins to fulfill the prophecy in the Old Testament. And in particular, and this is one of many, Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6. And I'll just read the quote. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah with respect to the Messiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared. Then will the lame leap up like a stag. Then the tongue of the dumb will sing. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is beginning to do with these miracles. He's enacting the prophecies, fulfilling it. And he's also bringing in what's called the Jubilee. In the Old Testament, there was this notion that at the 50th year, all debts would be forgiven and there would be a return of the ancestral lands that may have been sold as a result of debts so that there would be this equality within the community Jesus is going to basically say, I am the Jubilee. I have come to bring forgiveness of sins, wiping away all of the sins that a person has, and new life. Wasn't that when
1: slaves were set free
0: too? Yes, when slaves were set free and healings and so on. That's what Jesus is beginning to initiate. He's fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. But now, with respect to the Trinity, And this subordination or obedience, that's also prophesied in the Old Testament. And I'm going to just read to you a quote from Deuteronomy, one of the five books of the Torah. And this is the famous quote with respect to the coming of the Messiah, 18, starting at verse 15, a prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kinsmen. To him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their kinsmen, and I will put my words into his mouth. He will tell them all that I command him. So there's the subordination obedience. It's right there. And Jesus will say again and again, I only speak what I hear the Father telling me. I was just going to say when John was
1: like, in prison and he asked,
0: is Jesus in the Messiah? he said, well, tell um, John, right? Like the lame, yes. man, the deaf, the and he was just right? That's right. Perfect. So when John was arrested and John's disciples come to Jesus and say, what's going on? Jesus says, go tell John the miracles. Because John would know that's a fulfillment of the prophecies. The deaf will hear, the mute will speak, and the lame won't walk. Okay, so back to chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. A lot said there. There's a sense in which this new life begins now, not just in the future, now, when we come and accept Christ as the Messiah, new life. That will happen when we're baptized in that faith and our souls are flooded with God's regenerating grace. The life of the Trinity comes to inhabit us. That's how intimate the relationship is. That's why it's so important to remain in sanctifying grace, which is why we have the sacrament of confession. Okay, yes, good question. So what does the voice mean when you hear the voice of the Son of God? Again, you've got to go back into the Old Testament because the voice of God is depicted as very powerful. For example, Psalm 29, let's just go there for a second, because this whole psalm is dedicated to the powerful voice of God. So it says, give to the Lord the glory due, God's name, bow down before the Lord's holy splendor. This is Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is power. The voice of the Lord is splendor. The voice of the Lord cracks the cedars. The Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon and so on. The voice of the Lord strikes with fiery flame. The voice of the Lord rocks the desert. The voice of the Lord is what's being referenced here because of the power of God's word. And
1: when the Israelites heard that, they were scared. They
0: were very scared and very scared. that's right. At Sinai, for example, at Theophany, they were scared and rightly so because they were still in sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, present tense, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, that's a reference to Lazarus, because what happens is Jesus goes right into his tomb and speaks, come out, Lazarus. Lazarus hears the voice and is raised from the dead. Now, he's not raised to eternal life, he's raised from the dead. And what Jesus is saying is that the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And he's referring mostly to that conversion from the death of sin into the new life of grace, which begins now because we've accepted the word of God.
1: Uh, My question is, um, the same says, the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. Is Jesus talking about the spiritually dead yeah, and, well, uh, most primarily
0: he's speaking about the spiritually dead.
1: And if they hear even they're dead, they if they hear, they believe them, they accept them, they have eternal life. Right. So they're given a second chance in reality.
0: And we're given many chances. Yeah. <laughs> they're giving another chance. <clears throat> yes. So that's primarily what he means is that spiritual rebirth, which the Old Testament could not give. The law could not do that. The voice of Jesus will. For those who listen and obey. So the Father has life in Himself. We know that from God's revelation to Moses at the burning bush when Moses investigated this bush burning but not being consumed, and hears a voice. When Moses says, Well, who are you? the reply is, I am who I am, which is (laughs) Yahweh, which means life itself, not partially. I am who I am. My existence is equal to my essence. Now, that's a philosophical interpretation of that verse, but basically, God always existed, always will exist. He has life in himself and has given that to the Son so that the Son may have life in himself. There's, again, claim to divinity, which is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that theme is repeated in the prologue as well. Verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We've gone through the son of man reference from Daniel chapter 7, which is a title of divinity, and Jesus is going to adopt that title as his favorite designation, son of man. The one who came on the clouds to the ancient of days And the Ancient of Days, being the Father, conferred uh, the eternal kingdom on the Son. And all who were present, thousands upon thousands, were given to the Son. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. Notice the theme, the hour, that was referenced earlier at the wedding feast at Cana. My hour has not yet come, but Mary persists, and Jesus begins his ministry. The hour refers to his death and resurrection. For the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There's the voice again. And come forth those who have done good. Now here he's referring to the end of time, the second coming. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, notice good works is essential for salvation. You're not saved by faith alone, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then, well, not doing good, but doing evil. No. It's both confessing Christ as Lord and Savior and living it out. Faith has this tangible component to it. It's not just an intellectual assent, but it's faith expressing itself in love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Yes,
1: because we believe we do the good works. That's right. And because we believe and do the good works, it's another uh, helping hand to get us into uh, eternal life.
0: You can't separate works from faith, as James says. Faith without works is dead. He says it point blank. The only time we hear faith alone is addressed by James saying, faith alone, not sufficient. Faith without works is dead. Hmm? What kind of work is
1: it? Like,
0: how broad is it? Well, basically keeping the commandments, for example, obeying God, obeying the um, natural law that's in us, where we know what's right and wrong just by our conscience, so obeying the voice of God, which is Christ speaking through our conscience, and the moral law. So the moral law has a salvific aspect to it. Whereas, and this was a question posed in an earlier session about separating justification and sanctification, which the Protestants tend to do for good reason because their whole basis of justification is that declaration of faith. And that's what saves you, according to Luther and the rest of them, is that declaration, that belief. But then sanctification, working it out, doing good works, that's separate. And it has nothing to do with your salvation. They will say, I mean, eventually, if you have nothing but evil deeds, then did you really, did your words mean anything? But that's just circular. Like almsgiving, like um, acts of love, like acts of love. Yeah. You know, so Jesus gave the three typical pietistic acts, which is fasting, fasting prayer. prayer, and almsgiving. Those are good works. But charity, basically, charity. Loving God and neighbor, that's the two commandments. Notice in Matthew chapter 25, when it comes to the last judgment, Jesus tells the parable about how we are judged. And it's based on whether we did good or not. The sheep will be separated from the goats based on whether you fed the poor, clothed the naked, and so on. But faith also has to be there. So it's faith expressing itself in loving deeds. That's the Catholic understanding. And that's exactly what is said here in John chapter five. And when it comes to the general judgment, those who have done good will have resurrected life and those who have done evil will have resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, now here we get again the whole aspect of testimony. We're in a court scene in John's gospel. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own authority As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's that obedience, that dependency, that subordination, which is essential to the life of the Trinity, which the Jews don't understand, the Jewish leaders. They're thinking Jesus is in competition with the Father. There's two gods. They can't have that. But Jesus is trying to introduce them into this loving relationship within the Godhead. That the Father gives his whole being to the Son. Pours it out from all eternity. He begets the Son. And the Son receives it in gratitude and loves the Father eternally. And the love between the Father and the Son is so substantial that it's actually a person. The Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is trying to introduce to the Jewish leaders this functional subordination, yet equality of essence. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I can do nothing except what I perceive the Father telling me to do. I say nothing except what the Father wants me to say. And yet, I and the Father are one, which he will go on to say. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. (laughs) That's Yahweh. So equality of essence, and yet In the relationship, there's a dependency, a relationship of subordination in love. There was never a time when the Father was simply the Father. And yet the Father is the progenitor of the Trinity. He's the one who initiates. The Son receives and gives back. And the Holy Spirit basks in that mutual love. So it's very relational based on love. And that's what Jesus is trying to introduce to these Pharisees. And it's such a challenging notion because, I mean, we have the entire Muslim religion not accepting that, Judaism not accepting that. Alright, so this is not easy. I can do nothing on my own authority, verse 30, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness to me, and I know that the testimony which he bears to me is true. Now, he's speaking in a human sense here, that in a Jewish court of law, you cannot be your own witness in that sense. You can, but it's not sufficient. You have to have two or three witnesses with you. Jesus is acknowledging that's the way the Jewish legal system is based. And he's saying, I have these witnesses. If I bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness to me, and I know that the testimony which he bears to me is true. Here he will list five separate witnesses. Verse 33, you sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth with his life. Not that the testimony which I receive is from man, but I say this, that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Until he started challenging the marital status of Herod. Verse 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has granted me to accomplish, these very works which I am doing bear me witness that the Father has sent me. So the miracles, the works, that's another aspect of testimony. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness to me. So the Father is the third witness. And we see this at Jesus' baptism, because the Father speaks, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. There's the fourth witness the Scriptures, the Old Testament, all those prophecies bear witness to Christ. Yet you refuse to come to me, verse 40, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, But I know that you have not the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. It is Moses who accuses you, on whom you have set your hope. There's the fifth witness. Moses himself, as we quoted Deuteronomy, said, God will send one like me as the Messiah. It is Moses who accuses you on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my works? That's the chapter. It's really a beautiful, important chapter of Jesus trying with utter mercy to bring the Jewish leaders to where the Samaritans have gone, accepting him as the Son of Man, as was prophesied by Isaiah, by Daniel, and others. All right, so next week we will do the final chapter of this series, chapter six, which is so crucial. Let's end in prayer, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let's pray, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.